Joined this morning by Michael Moreau, a NASA Deputy Project Manager, as he's the project manager for the OSIRIS-REx mission, which has landed on an asteroid named Bennu and is bringing back a sample of what that asteroid is all about. Michael, this is going to be great. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Give the folks a little bit of a background on what the OSIRIS-REx mission is all about. Great. Thanks, Wayne. I'm happy to be here. So um, OSIRIS-REx is this really exciting mission that's part of NASA's, uh, one of NASA's planetary science missions. It was uh, selected in 2012, uh, launched in 2016, and took a two-year journey to reach this asteroid called Bennu, which is uh, a near-Earth asteroid that's in an orbit very similar to the Earth's orbit. Um, we spent about two years studying this asteroid Bennu, um, pick, picked a place that was safe to uh, have the spacecraft touch the surface. We collected a sample and then stowed that on board the spacecraft, and it's been making its way back towards Earth, and it's, uh, it's supposed to arrive here in September of 2023, so just about 13 months uh, from now, a little less than that. Michael, I'm fascinated by the technology that allows you to shoot a rocket up and then put this probe so it lands safely and no damage done to the actual probe on the asteroid. What's the technology behind that soft landing? Uh, that's a great question. So my background on the mission originally was as a leader of the navigation team. So our team was was solving that problem of how we designed the trajectory that would uh, set up a rendezvous with Bennu, uh, you know, within the amount of fuel that we can carry on board. And then once we're there, how do we navigate around this, this object? Uh, Bennu is a small asteroid. It's about 500 meters in diameter. So you can imagine five football fields uh, stacked end to end. That's about how big it is. Uh, but it's actually really small. Its gravity, gravity is so small that it's a challenge to fly around it. It's almost like you're dancing with this thing, uh, making little tiny movements with your thrusters to, to stay in orbit and adjust your orbit in order to observe it. So that was the, the challenge we knew we had going into the mission. Uh, but when we saw Bennu, we realized we were very surprised because we were expecting something that was kind of like a sand pile uh, that would have a very smooth surface. And in reality, it was just covered with huge boulders. And we weren't sure where there was going to be a safe spot for us to, to touch down, uh, that, that we could actually get to the surface and not damage the spacecraft. Is this the first time that anybody that we know of on this planet has actually landed something on an asteroid? It's not the first time we've landed on an asteroid. So there was a mission named uh, NEAR. Um, and at the very end of their mission, when they were almost out of fuel, they set the spacecraft down on the surface uh, at the end of the mission, and that was how they ended the mission. And that was, uh, it wasn't planned, uh, but it was an exciting way for them to end the mission. Um, OSIRIS-REx is a little different because we didn't actually land and touch down in the way that you would normally think about this. We did a maneuver called TAG, uh, and that stands for touch and go. So you can imagine like a pogo stick, we had a robotic arm that extended from the spacecraft with the sample collection mechanism on the end, and we slowly descended to the surface, and then when you did this move like, you know, like a pogo stick bouncing, but in slow motion. And so we were only in contact with the surface for maybe 10 or 15 seconds uh, to collect the sample, and then we were moving away again. Uh, that turned out to be a good thing because when we touched the surface, it, it, it behaved in a way that we were not expecting.
back in 1969 when Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon, we were able to watch it, which I still think is incredible technology. But the point is there were cameras there to watch it. Is there video or do you have a camera that shows when this probe landed on Bennu? Yeah, so the spacecraft carried a number of different cameras, different, uh, you know, fields of view and, and zoom capabilities um, because we want, we were studying the, the asteroid in great detail before we did the tag maneuver. Um, so we have some great footage of the spacecraft descending towards the surface and touching the surface. And then um, the, the, the method that we used to collect the sample was by uh, firing high-pressure nitrogen gas into the surface, and that drove material up into the sample collection head. Well, um, that whole process was, was uh, you know, captured through these cameras. And so we have videos of the spacecraft descending, touching the surface, the surface almost exploding from the force of this nitrogen gas. And then, you know, as we back away, the clouds of debris. So um, the, the mission website has a lot of, uh, of video uh, uh, that was recorded from the mission like that. Yeah, I watched some of it on the website this week, and it's kind of cool to, to see not just the soft landing, but how the actual thing operates as well. Now, talk me through what this sample that is going to be brought back to Earth next year consists of. How deep did it go? Meaning, was it one foot deep? Was it five feet deep? And then how much can you actually bring back to the planet Earth? Yeah, so um, our requirement was to collect only about 60 grams of sample, so that's about the size of like a Milky Way bar or something like that. Um, in reality, we believe we collected somewhere around 300 grams of sample, uh, so we're very excited about that. Um, when we touched the surface, the spacecraft uh, met almost no resistance, and that was one of the surprises you know, that we learned from analyzing this video afterwards. The surface of this asteroid was like a ball pit, in the mall, you know, that you would play in. There was almost no resistance. And what that meant was that when we fired the gas bottle, it excavated this huge crater about a half a meter deep and maybe eight meters long. Uh, so a huge hole, a lot of material was pushed aside. But the good news is that that material uh, was very easy to collect and, and, and just jammed full in our sample head, which was why we were able to collect uh, such a large sample. But if we had not backed away immediately, the spacecraft would have just continued to de descend into this uh, surface and become embedded in, in the asteroid. So, How does this compare to the samples they took on the Apollo missions, and is it possibly the largest sample since then? Yeah, that's true. Um, the Obviously, the, the Apollo missions, the astronauts brought hundreds of pounds of, of samples back with them. Um, this is the largest sample, extraterrestrial sample, that's been brought back to Earth. Uh, since then. There have been some other uh, similar sample return missions. NASA has collected uh, samples of cosmic dust uh, on a mission and returned it in a capsule that was very similar to our sample return capsule. Um, also, the Japanese have uh, executed a sample return mission, and actually they are our partners on this mission. We, Our two nations agreed to exchange pieces of the sample that we collected in case one of our missions was, was not successful. So when the sample comes back, where does it land? Where is the actual touchdown point? Uh, the sample is on its way back to the Earth, uh, planning a landing in the Utah desert west of Salt Lake City. So there's a, a huge dry lake beds that are west of uh, the Great Salt Lake. 
and there happens to be an Army and an Air Force uh, range there where they do uh, all kinds of different testing. But it's a nice, flat, open area that the military controls the airspace. Um, so the sample uh, capsule will enter the Earth's atmosphere over the coast of California. Uh, it will go through that atmospheric entry period and then land on parachutes uh, in this range in Utah. And then we will go out in helicopters and pick it up uh, and... and uh, Eventually, it will make its way to Johnson Space Center, and that is the same location where the Apollo moon samples are curated. Michael Moreau, our guest, the NASA Deputy Project Manager of the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is also involved in mapping Bennu. How does that work? Well, in order to figure out where we were going to touch the surface and collect the sample, we had to map the whole asteroid, but that wasn't the only reason we did it. We wanted to understand... Uh, the, the composition of Bennu and its properties and its mass. And so we had a whole observation campaign that took about a year and a half of collecting images and um, measurements of range to the surface using a LIDAR device. Um, so the way that we did that was we gradually flew the spacecraft in closer and closer orbits uh, and flybys of Bennu in order to get higher and higher resolution uh, data. And then we use that initial data to pick the best places where we might be able to land. But as I mentioned, Bennu was so rocky, there were no sites that even came close to meeting the original landing accuracy requirement. Um, so we had to uh, continue to observe and go even closer and, and uh, study some of these really small sites uh, to, to, to actually develop the uh, capability to land there. Is the asteroid Bennu a risk to planet Earth? Well, it's not really. Uh, it is. It is probably one of the top one and one or two most potentially hazardous asteroids. There is about a one in seventeen hundred chance that Bennu could impact the Earth in the late twenty-second century. That was one of the reasons we picked Bennu uh, because it was a potentially hazardous asteroid. By orbiting it for two years, we were able to greatly refine Bennu's trajectory. Um, so it is one of the most potentially hazardous asteroids, but it's still a very minuscule uh, chance that it will uh, impact the Earth. But another benefit of studying Bennu and particularly learning more about this rubble pile that's very loosely held together, um, there's, a, there's another part of NASA that's uh, called the Planetary Defense uh, Coordination Office, and they are studying ways in which we could potentially uh, modify the trajectory of an asteroid if we found one to be on an impact trajectory with the Earth. And the things that we've learned at Bennu are uh, really helpful to uh, developing those strategies that might be used in the future. And to be clear, you're not involved with a DART mission, but it's along those same lines where we're talking about shooting something up to deflect the path of an asteroid that may be a risk to the planet Earth down the road. Again, you're not part of that mission, but you're certainly a fan of that kind of technology. So just tell the people what the DART mission is all about and where it stands. Yeah, so I'm not part of the DART mission, but some of my teammates that worked on OSIRIS-REx are also working on that mission. I know a lot about it. Uh, it's a really it's, it's a technology demonstration mission, so it's not a scientific exploration mission like OSIRIS-REx. It was designed to test the concept of changing the trajectory of an asteroid using a spacecraft impactor. So DART um, is targeting this binary asteroid system that, that again, is kind of in, a, in, in an orbit close to the Earth, so it's accessible to us. Um, and the spacecraft will um, impact 
the smaller of the two asteroids. And then from Earth, we will observe the orbit of the small asteroid about the larger asteroid and how much that changed from the impact. And scientists hope to learn uh, to what extent that kind of an impactor could be used to change the trajectory. So these, these impacts, you can predict them hundreds of years in the future. So you just have to make a small deflection of this large asteroid, and, and that small change over, over decades or hundreds of years makes a large difference. Um, so that's why it's, a, it's an attractive technique for uh, protecting the Earth from a future impact. Michael, you're also not involved in the Artemis rocket that got delayed last week, and now they're talking a month or two down the road before they can put it up again. But just your thoughts on that whole situation. I think a lot of people want instant gratification. They want this thing to go up, but NASA's taking it step by step, and they want to do the most, the safest thing they can possibly do. So your thoughts on that mission and the delay of that mission? Well, I'm I'm really been following that very closely. Um, obviously, there's been a huge amount invested in in making that successful, but that rocket and then the capsule that's sitting on top of it are such an incredibly complicated system, um, and it's a brand new system. So uh, they're they're just they're definitely still working out the kinks. I remember as a kid watching the first space shuttle launches and being frustrated that they were delayed and delayed and delayed, and it was a similar thing. They were just trying to work out the kinks of doing this for the first time. Uh, but I'm optimistic they're, they're getting close, and um, I'm optimistic that it will launch uh, in the coming months, and it's going to be really impressive. It's a, it's a big rocket. Nothing like that has launched from the, the Cape uh, since the Apollo days. Uh, so it's a very exciting uh, step for our country. Artemis, the NASA program to return astronauts to the lunar surface, which is pretty exciting stuff. And again, I was around for 69 and watched Neil Armstrong steps, and boy, did you get goosebumps after that. Going back to, to your primary job here, and that's the OSIRIS-REx mission. Tell me what happens after OSIRIS-REx drops off the sample return capsule in September of next year. It keeps on going. Yeah, that's right. So um, the the way that the sequence will work is the spacecraft is carrying this atmospheric entry capsule, and we are targeting the spacecraft to enter the Earth's atmosphere at a very precise point, so it'll land in this range in Utah, uh, and it'll release. So the spacecraft the way it'll work is it'll release the space uh, the, the sample return capsule about four hours before it's supposed to enter into the atmosphere, and then the spacecraft will fire its thrusters and then fly by the Earth at about uh, 150 mile missed distance. Um, so when the spacecraft flies by the Earth, it's going to get an Earth gravity assist that will put it on a different orbit into the inner solar system. And we've designed a trajectory that will actually take OSIRIS-REx uh, back to Earth through multiple gravity assists to reach another near-Earth asteroid that's called Apophis. And Apophis is a very interesting target for us to study because it's another asteroid that will fly very close by the Earth in the future. Apophis is not a hazard to the Earth, but in April 2029, it will fly by the Earth at an altitude of about 20,000 uh, kilometers, which is about halfway to the geostationary orbit where our communication satellites live. Uh, so it'll be a very exciting uh, time when this asteroid flies by the Earth and our OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is going to be screaming right on the heels of Apophis as it flies by the Earth and then we'll do a, an extended study of that asteroid uh, starting in 2029.
Full disclosure here, when I was admitted to UConn, I was in the School of Engineering with the goal of being an aeronautical engineer. Yes, I could have been doing now what Michael is doing now, but I'm not. I'm doing this. He's doing that. So along the same lines, Michael, what's your background? How did you get involved in NASA and the space program? Um, well, that's a great question uh, and a good story because I grew up on a little dairy farm uh, in Vermont. I was actually born in Danbury, Connecticut, uh, but my parents moved to Vermont uh, when I was about six years old, and I grew up on a farm there. Um, it happened to be that uh, after studying engineering at the University of Vermont, I applied for a NASA summer job. I just saw it on a bulletin board. Uh, it was through the Space Grant Consortium at the University of Vermont. And... Uh, I found myself all of a sudden uh, working at Goddard Space Flight Center in the summer. And um, it was a real amazing experience for me because I had always been a kid that was really excited about space, but living in rural Vermont, I didn't really make the connection that people had jobs doing uh, work in space. And, and so that was like an aha moment, and I changed gears and, and, and studied, began my study of aerospace engineering Eventually uh, got a Ph.D. doing a research project for NASA and then came to, to work here. Um, so, you know, my, my bottom line is that uh, you, can, you can come from anywhere and work in, uh, you know, an engineering or scientific field like this. It may not uh, seem like that, but, you, you know, there are lots of opportunities there, and, and really anyone has that opportunity. It's one of the amazing things about this country that we live in. This is fascinating stuff, Michael. Thank you for sharing your stories with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me and for your interest. Michael Moreau is the Deputy Project Manager for the OSIRIS-REx mission as they've sent a probe up to the asteroid Bennu, and they're bringing back a sample. 14 WILI, Willimantic, and 95.3 FM.